Good evening, good morning, good afternoon. This is lucky number 23, episode 23, I believe, of Make the American. The iconic number 23. 23 doesn't seem like the greatest number, but you know, the fact that Michael Jordan made it, it wore it. Michael Jordan made 23 cool. 23 has just become like the number. It's what everybody in basketball wants to be. I guess it's not too popular of a football number. What am I even talking about? I'm talking about episode 23. It's a it's gonna be a bit of a somber episode um, on a couple different fronts. You'll 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 understand why as I wrap it up. So so bear with me here. Um, this could be a tough one to get through. Stop saying um, Nick. But let's kick off with a little football. Let's get excited for a second. We have College Game Day coming to Seattle, Washington this weekend. It's October 14th, Oregon and Washington is a brawl. And we're coming, coming Nobody's playing better than Michael Penix Jr. Because we've got the Washington Huskies, the 8th ranked, 7th ranked Washington Huskies versus the 8th ranked Oregon Ducks, the hated Ducks. Now, these are the two best teams in the Pac-12. This is one of the biggest, I can't think of a bigger football game in Washington history. I, I truly, and I know that's not true. We've played for a national title a couple of times. That's not necessarily true. But on the grounds of Montlake at Husky Stadium on beautiful Lake Washington, I don't think it, it, it's ever gotten as big as this. So I hope the crowd, I will not be in attendance. Tons of friends and family will be in attendance. I will not be in attendance. I will be watching with some friends. College game day will be there. And uh, I, I think I think the winner of Washington, Oregon, is going to be in the college football playoff. Now, they still got a gauntlet to run, both of them, because the Pac-12 is awful good this year. But the winner of this football game not only probably has a spot in the Final Four, as it would stand, they probably have maybe the front runner for the Heisman, either Bo Nix of Oregon or Michael Penix Jr. of Washington. So super, super nervous. I'm wearing my Washington Husky stuff. Go dogs, go dogs. Um, we'll see how it plays out. I think they're a two and a half point favorite. I hope Husky Stadium is absolutely rocking, which I know it will be. I know it will be. So it's a big one. It's a big one in Montlake. It's a big one for the entire country. And um, I'm nervous and excited. But this is what big time football is all about. I mean, think about it. I'm a Denver Bronco fan. The Broncos have not been in a big game since the 2016 Super Bowl against the Carolina Panthers. Honestly, not one big game since then. Big games make you nervous. They make you excited. It's why we become fans of teams. We want to be a part of big games. We want to be nervous. We want to care. This matchup has all of that. So, okay. Now, let's see here. More football. We're talking more football here. Arizona and USC kicked off at 7.30 p.m. on Saturday night, and it went into overtime. It was a great football game. Arizona's got a really underrated football team. They gave Washington a decent run the week before, and they damn near had USC beat. Up 17-0. Caleb Williams, the reigning Heisman Trophy winner, fought back. It was a, it was a wonderful game. Pac-12 after dark. ESPN after dark. 
with all of this realignment, everybody switching conferences and the, and, and the Pac-12 essentially you know, dissolving now to the Pac-2, we have got to preserve these late-night football games. And I know some fans, especially older fans, don't love the late kickoff. Well, fuck them. So what? I wouldn't like it either. But I, you know what? I love a late kickoff when I can sit back on the couch with a buddy or my sons or whatever, crack a beer, and watch football. And it's 10 o'clock at night, and I'm watching an impactful game with the Heisman Trophy winner. It doesn't get any better than that. We've got to preserve late night football, and we've got to increase it. I would love it. There should be a 7 o'clock kick, a 7.30 kick. I, I know pac twelve's even done like 8.15 kicks. It's special. It's cool. I know it's difficult as a fan if you're going to actually attend the football game. But if you're on the East Coast and you're at a bar, a sports bar on the East Coast, and it's 7.30 in the West, it's 10.30 there, you've basically got that football game, a live football game, a meaningful football game, until that bar closes. You can only watch ESPN highlights of Alabama or Tennessee or Ohio State so long. Give me some real shit now. I know what happened. I know Georgia just rolled whoever. I want live football. So Pac-12 after dark, whatever you want to call it. You can't call it Pac-12 after dark, Nick. Come on. You just can't do that. It's gone. It's gone. But late-night football is absolutely precious to me. It should be precious to you. What is better than kicking back late night and watching football? So one more football thing to touch on. Miami head coach Mario Cristobal. Mario Cristobal. Miami and Georgia Tech were playing football. It was a late game, too. Uh, It didn't get over. Boy, I want to say it was, you know, 8 o'clock on the West Coast. I'm not sure, 9 o'clock. But uh, Miami had appeared to secure victory. All they needed to do was take a knee, and they ran the ball not once, but twice. The second time, the running back fumbled. It did appear he may be down, but video replay evidence was, it just wasn't conclusive enough to overturn the actual call on the field. Now, Mario Cristobal, folks, Ladies and gentlemen, does anybody know what Mario Cristobal makes per year to coach the Miami Hurricanes? I've read online it says $8 million. I just re- listened to Rick Neuheisel say it was closer to $10 million. 8 to $10 million a year Mario Cristobal gets paid to try and win 12 fucking football games. Okay, that's what he gets paid for. Mario Cristobal probably works 16-hour days devising schemes and game plans and recruiting. Everything is geared and centered around winning 12 doggone football games. Well, on Saturday night against the Georgia Tech Yellow Jackets, Mario Cristobal won a football game. And all he needed to do was use the most powerful football play there is in any coach's playbook the kneel down victory formation what an amazing play sorry opponents this game is over we're going to take a knee and we're going to go celebrate in the locker room Mario Cristobal didn't do that he literally 
ran the football, the running back coughed the ball up, and the Miami Hurricanes, and it was three plays, 75 yards, lost with one second to go on the clock because their $10 million coach refused to take a knee. Yikes. I remember Chris Peterson, old Husky coach, old Boise State coach, did something similar. He did some. He did this uh, against Arizona, uh, I believe his first year as Husky head football coach. And I remember sitting, listening to him in the press conference, and he said he would do the exact same thing over again. I, we handed the ball to a running back named Deontay Cooper. Cooper fumbles, and we don't win. Arizona wins. Arizona was like nine in the country at the time, too. It would have actually been a signature win for us. And he said, I'd do it over again. I'd do the same thing. And I remember thinking, God, if I was the AD, I would literally bring Chris Peterson into my office and say, if you do the same thing again, I'll fire your ass. Now, Mario Cristobal's a Miami guy. He's making a lot of money. They're probably not going to fire him. But wake the fuck up, dude. You get to take a knee. Your boys fought for 60 minutes or however long a college football game is. I know it may not quite be as long as a pro game. 48 minutes. Your boys fought and they bled. Your coaching staff and yourself prepared endlessly for this W. And you have it in your hand. You take all that hard work and all that preparation and you just throw it out the damn window. For what? I'm so confused, Mario Cristobal. Shit, you could you should give your salary back, or at least listen. You're getting $10 million to play, to try to win 12 games. You almost would give about a million of that back. I think everyone would agree on that. <clears throat> and, and here's the beauty of sports. If this was politics and there was Republicans and Democrats, Mario Cristobal would be defended. If he was a Democrat, he'd be defended by the left. And if he was a, you know, a Republican, he'd be defended by the right. In sports, we don't give a shit. The metrics are so solid. We know and we understand a win and a loss. We can't be tricked. Politics, we're always tricked. We're always fooled. So, goodness gracious. So there we go. There's my college football talk. There's a lot more to to, to, to say, but um, we're going to move on. Um, I got a, a conversation with one of my buddies. He was kind of joking, but he wasn't joking about seceding from the union, how certain states should secede. And I just wanted to talk about this really quick. Are you fucking kidding me? This is this is everything that Nick the American is not about. Seceding from the Union. Leaving the United States of America. And so, if anybody ever brings this up, I, I'm just curious, logistically, how would this work? Because we obviously have, we're, we're red and blue in our families, and our friend circles, obviously intermingled in, in, in states. But... If you actually wanted to secede from the union, would you still do let's let's say you were a red state because a lot of the talk is from red states wanting to leave or some Yahoo member of the house floating it like machine gun fucking Taylor Green. How would it work? Do would would red states continue to do business with blue states? Would blue states allow it? Would they instead of a civil war, would it be an economic civil war let's say if if florida and and florida is almost 50 50 yeah it's it's a red state but it's like 51 49 and it's solid 51 or 52 48 
but it's almost 50-50. What would happen if Florida was destroyed by hurricanes? Would they, and, and they seceded from the Union, would they want federal aid? Of course they would. Would they get federal aid? Would they qualify for federal aid if they left the United States of America? I don't know. I don't know. So here's something interesting to look at. I mentioned California is the fourth largest economy in the world. It's obviously the largest economy of any state in our country. The top five economies in our country, California one, Texas two, New York three, Florida four, and Illinois five. Those are the top five in terms of GDP, gross domestic product, okay? Leaving the United States of America for a blue state or a red state, wouldn't that spell absolute disaster? All of a sudden, we have states boycotting other states. California won't allow a red state to access its ports. Texas won't allow blue states. Let's say North Dakota says, we want out of the union. Like, geez, you're, you guys don't even have a gross domestic product. You guys don't even rank. You guys are really damn lucky you got two senators. And you guys want to leave. What would that mean for a blue businessman like me? If my home state, Tennessee, no longer allowed liberals to, to operate, what would it mean for a red businessman who does a lot of business with blue states? So I, I just want to pump the brakes on this. You know, I, I like I said, I talked about it with a buddy of mine. He kind of joked about it, but it's no joke. We're the United States of America. Nobody is seceding. And if someone is calling for that, I want to know your plan. I want to know how you intend to pull this off. Machine Gun Taylor Green, someone like that. I know that she wanted, if you, you know, she, this wasn't seceding from the union, but if, if a, a Democrat moved into a red state, they would have to wait five years to vote. Now she didn't, she didn't say that was that rule was vice versa. But it, it's just ridiculous. I want to squash it. And it's everything that Nick the American is not about because I say this over and over and over again. We are united on 86% of stuff. We are divided on another 14%. Let's figure out how we work together on that 14%. Okay? All right. Well, let's see. Since we talked last, I brought up uh, Kevin McCarthy has been ousted as Speaker of the House. And with what's going on in the Middle East, it kind of complicates things because we're speakerless, which I guess means we can't really pass things through the House if, say, Israel needs funding. That's an interesting topic that we're going to get to. But, hey, Kevin McCarthy, you guys have heard me talk about this all, like since episode three. John Boehner, Paul Ryan, and now Kevin McCarthy. There's some, some tough Republicans to work with. And the, the whole thing about becoming speaker and being speaker is to, is to garner support amongst your own party. You have to have that. It's hard enough to cross aisle and work with the other side. And you get things done on certain, certain issues, certain bills, all the time. We work together. But when you cannot work with your own party... 
when your own party puts in a, a spe, you know, uh, you know a, a, a special piece of legislation, not legislation, uh, what the hell is the word? Your own party wanted to make sure that Kevin McCarthy, okay, we're going to let you be speaker, but any one of us, any member of the House could call for a vote for your head at any moment we wish. That's never been true in the House of Representatives. It should not be true now. Speaker is a damn tough job. Hey, I don't have to agree with Kevin McCarthy, but I can sympathize with him a little bit. Sort of. But um, now, let's move on from this speaker thing into what just happened in the Middle East. We've got, ever since I've been little, you know, I grew up and God, it was what, 1993 when Yitzhak Rabin, the prime minister of Israel, was assassinated. And it seemed like every other week there was a suicide bombing in Gaza or the West Bank. And so we had some horrific terrorist attacks occur in the Gaza Strip by a Palestinian terror group called Hamas. And so I started, I, I, I tried to do a little bit of research because I've done research in the past. What's the source of this conflict? It comes from the 70s. You know, and, 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 and I'm not going to pretend to be any Middle Eastern you know, expert. I, I'm a moron, okay? Hey, I'm not Donald Trump who, who puts in his, his, his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, and says he's going to, quote, remake Middle East peace. The one thing I understand about Middle East peace is it's an oxymoron. Middle East peace? Are you shitting me? So, some of these videos that you see, the Hamas, I mean, they rolled up on this music festival of like 700 people. People are partying, getting drunk, getting high, having a great time. And all of a sudden, a couple hundred are dead. They're getting kidnapped. Their bodies are being paraded through the streets. About as a worst case picture you could paint in the world was was going on in Gaza. Now, does Hamas control the Palestinians? And and and, and you know I'm reading about this, and and there's another group called Fatah, uh, Fatah um, that helps make up the Palestinian Liberation Organization, and. This group, Fatah and the PLO, didn't maybe didn't necessarily was born from peace, but they they agree that Israel has a right to exist, which some, is something that Hamas does not agree with. Hamas is a terrorist organization. And so you've got this semi-peaceful organization in the Fatah and the, and the PLO in the Palestinian over in Palestine. And then you've got Hamas. And, and is that gap even possible to bridge think about republican democrat how we don't like each other what if the plo or fatah said hey we are at war with hamas we need to get rid of this terrorist faction if we're going to move forward and try and live in peace with israel maybe we can set some guidelines with israel about how we go forward and and, and maybe they already do but working with hamas is like working with marjorie taylor green machine gun taylor green you're not dealing with, you know, real rationale here. You're dealing with dipshits. And so I'm looking at the Gaza Strip. It's 25, it's a, it's a sliver of land that's 25 miles long. It's got, a, it's got between like 2 and 2.3 million people that live in it. 
a couple hundred thousand of these people are Jewish, that have Jewish settlements. And I'm wondering, is there any way that peace will ever exist as long as Israel occupies Gaza? Now, the same with the West Bank. I'm not sure. I don't know. I'm certainly not the one to remake Middle East peace. Is it possible to remake Middle East peace? I, I, I just don't think so. And so it's kind of interesting in this country where we support Israel. We support Israel. You drive by, you see yard signs. You know, just, you know, it could be a year ago, five years ago. You know, we support Israel. We stand with Israel. By the way, my wife is Jewish. By marriage, I'm part of the tribe. Okay. But uh, here, so we've got, do we fund Israel or not? Do we fund Ukraine or not? Think about this. You know, under Ronald Reagan's Republican Party, funding Ukraine would have been, <coughs> excuse me, an absolute given. Ronnie Reagan would have given his right leg to beat the Russians. Anything. And if Ukrainians want to break off and have their own country and the Russians want to attack them, Ronald Reagan would have supported Ukraine no matter what. And we see in the Republican Party, this it, this is not Ronald Reagan's Republican Party. They don't necessarily, uh, in the House, it seems half of them don't want to fund Ukraine. Why are we funding Ukraine? Why aren't we funding the United States of America? And, and I understand that logic. I, and I, I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not judging any Republican who doesn't want to fund Ukraine or necessarily doesn't want to fund Israel. I think we've seen some Democrats come out and say we shouldn't fund Israel. Just a point blank check. Taibi, Rashibi, I'm a God. Why don't you do your research, Nick? Taibi, she's a, 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 a member of the House. She's a Democrat. Other Democrats have lambasted her for suggesting that we don't fund Israel. Joe Biden saying, "Hey, man, whatever you need, baby, whatever you need." Meanwhile, we got no Speaker of the House, so something may have to get done. But how do we decide? Do we fund Ukraine? and Israel, at the expense maybe of the American people, do we fund neither? That's what's tough about politics. And and if you're a Democrat and you say, I want to fund this, I don't want to fund this, you're an idiot. And if you're a Republican and you say the same thing, you're an idiot. But just like Mario Cristobal, there's a win and a loss. He gave up a win. There's no denying that. The metrics are so muddy for wins and losses in politics. It just comes down to tribalism. It comes down to politics. If you're a Democrat, you're, you're, you're wrong. If you're a Republican, you're wrong. The other side says so, even though there's no real proof. So we have a former president and a president doing, uh, let's see here. Let, let's look at this, this Israeli conflict in terms of American politics. So we have Donald Trump who gave up Intel, highly classified information to the Russians. This is confirmed. He talked about a a secret base that the Israelis were working on in Syria. And Syria and Iran are like brothers. Iran is best buds with the Russians. Of course they are. And so obviously this intel probably got back to them. It enraged Israeli intelligence officials 
that Trump would do this. And of course, Trump would fucking do this, right? Stop saying right, Nick. Of course, Trump would do this. Now, did it, did it have any impact? Did it have any consequences for this, this awful terrorist attack by Hamas? Probably not. But in politics, Democrats want to rip Trump and say, look at, look at, look at, you know, he gave up highly classified information to the Russians, to the enemy. That obviously got to Iran. Iran's funding the Palestinians and Hamas. Now, on the other side, on the other side, Biden freed, what, six hostages a while back from Iran? Six hostages. In order to get those hostages free, there was, we didn't, the United States didn't cut a $6 billion check. There was money being held up in banks across the world that the United States freed up, $6 billion, in fact, to go to Iran. And you have Republicans screaming, Biden caused this. This is Biden's fault. He supports terrorism. He funded terrorism. And I guess, you know, you could, I guess you could kind of make the case that hey, we kind of fund terrorism, even though it's not supposed to be used for any of that sort of stuff, but it, maybe it frees up money to do other stuff. But my whole thing with politics and these two issues, if you're interested in one, you should be interested in the other. You can't just be interested in, oh, Biden gave $6 billion to the, the Ukrainians. Excuse me, the Iranians. Iranians, Ukrainians. And then you can't look away and say, Trump sold out our number one ally to the Russians, Israel, which then sold, then, then played that forward to the Iranians, who probably played that forward to the Palestinians. I'm just saying, I'm not judging either one. But if you're interested in one, if you're calling out one, then you've got to call out the other. It's okay. It's not either or. You can't just raise your hand and say, Trump's responsible. Trump's a shithead. Biden, you know, pay for play. Give us hostages and we'll release funding. So even, you know, we have this terrorist attack in Palestine, in the Gaza Strip. And here we are at home. One side's blaming the other. The other side's blaming the other. And it's fucking ridiculous. Wake the fuck up. So tired of it. So tired of it. Two plus two is four. Only talking about one side, it doesn't get you to four. It doesn't get you to four. Okay? Iranians, the Russians, does anybody think the Saudis had anything to do with this? And if they did, anybody who supports the Saudis, are you, are you responsible for this because you support Saudi Arabia? So, the Saudis have come out in support of Palestine. I think I, I, think I asked this question to my mom when I was 11 years old, 12 years old, when, when there were suicide bombings, literally almost seemed like on a weekly basis in the West Bank and in Gaza. Is there any solution? I don't think so. I don't think so. And, and you can, you, we know how bad Jews are hated. Obviously, the Holocaust, Nazi Germany. We see it here in the United States with ne, you know, these rare neo-Nazis. We saw it in Charlottesville. Jews will not replace us. We, I, I saw some video in Sydney, Australia. 
people screaming, down with the Jews, hate the Jews, burn the Jews. My wife's Jewish. She's sweet. Yeah, the depressing thing is there is no solution. There literally is no solution. And Hamas, now the PLO and the Fatah, they have to be shaking their heads at Hamas because do you realize what is coming for you? Benjamin Netanyahu is not fucking around. He is going to do everything he can to eradicate Hamas. And in so doing, here's the awful part. He's going to kill thousands of innocent people. And then in so doing, create more terrorists who say, I will, my family was just blown up by an Israeli missile. My entire family. Now I will do everything in my power the rest of my life to get back at you, Israel. That's what Israel's doing right now. They're going to they're, they're gonna get their revenge and they're getting their revenge. This is going to be ugly. There's just no doggone solution. There's just no doggone solution. Trump, there's nobody that's going to remake Middle East peace. Ukraine, Israel, do we fund them? Do we not? Does it ever stop? Not sure. Not sure. So let's move on to something happier. Something happier. My high school football team got a W. Got a W, baby. We beat Newport 14-13. And uh, we were without a couple of players. They were without a couple of players. Our team captain, Benny, literally slipped coming out of the tunnel. He's, He's dealing with a separated shoulder. His shoulder popped out of socket. Didn't really play the first half was able to piece himself together. Benny, I love you. I love you. And, you know, it got me thinking. As as, as I look around the state, and I and, and you may do this too uh, around the country, you look at high school football scores. Uh, an 0-5 team's playing a 1-4 team. A 6-0 team's playing a 3-3 team. And it doesn't matter what your record is. Every win is so important to the coaching staff and to the players. We're two and four. And to get that win was absolutely huge. It was my birthday, uh, the day of the game, and the boys got me a card. And it's one of the rare sports, this combat sport that is football, that you get your arms around kids after the game and they're telling you that they love you and you're saying that you love them back. It's a special sport. And so the next time you see an 0-5 football team in high school, think about what they're going through. Think about what their coaching staff is going through. Think about how important a win would be for them. How special is high school football? It is incredible. Every coach in the state can understand what I'm talking about. It doesn't matter if you're 6-0 or you're 0-6. You prepare your butt off. You bleed, you sweat, you prepare. All to win on a Friday night. All to see your boys' reactions. And and, and it's when you see those reactions, you realize how special Friday Night Lights is. How special it is. So, and and I will, uh, at the end of the show, I'll talk about uh, a little bit more about this, but how... 
how truly sad and special um, this particular game, this 14-13 victory was. It was actually on a Thursday night. We played on a Thursday night. But it, 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 there was some there was some significance to to it that uh, I'm going to share with you in, uh, in 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 short order. So now let's talk. Oh God, we just keep jumping back to politics. I'm not even talking that much politics. Come on, I'm trying to be even. Gavin Newsom. We've talked about Gavin maybe running for president. The the liberal California kid. Um, good looking. Kimberly Guilfoyle's ex. But, uh, and you heard me talk about mushrooms, legalizing mushrooms. Well, what did the liberal California governor, Gavin Newsom, just recently do? He said no. He vetoed a bill legalizing hallucinogens. So he's liberal, but he does have some limits. And it sounds like maybe he's not totally against it, which I think is good. And I think he was right here. I was reading in terms of how what's dosing going to look like what are the benefits of it how are we going to, you know we just don't need to give everybody mushrooms and what the, what does regulation look like it's almost like uh you know um electric cars and and you know i said the science isn't there or the tech isn't there it's not affordable yet well the information you know We've got to do a lot more research on these hallucinogens. I don't want to jump the gun. Obviously, Gavin didn't want to jump the gun. But just wanted to bring it up. I talked mushrooms. Gavin Newsom in California says, pump the brakes, bitches. Not yet. Okay? Now, the other governor I'm going to talk about, you've heard me talk about him. You've heard me talk about him. Glenn Youngkin, governor of Virginia. Sounds like he's raising all sorts of cash. What's he raising cash for? He's not running for president, is he? Or is he? I told you, I think Youngkin should run. Now, maybe Youngkin's playing it smart. Maybe jumping in late gives you this huge splash. Everybody in the Republican, everybody in the GP running for president is, is, is running, make no mistake, is running for second place. If Youngkin can come with a war chest, if he can develop and mobilize a a state-by-state campaign where all of these primary races are spread out at certain dates, if he can get into Colorado and Wisconsin and California and he can set up hardcore field offices with all of his funding and he can catch fire, maybe his late splash is the right move. Maybe it's the right move. Please, like I said, give me Glenn Youngkin and give me Gavin Newsom. Wouldn't that be better for our country? We could actually maybe have some debate. If we get Biden and Trump, we're going to have, oh my, oh my God. Biden's old and Trump is not human. It it just boils. And Trump is old too. But, uh, so I thought I would bring that up. Newsom and Youngkin make a little waves. One for mushrooms, vetoing mushroom bills. Damn it, Gavin. And the other is collecting cash. What are you collecting cash for, Governor Youngkin? I'm interested. So, okay. This will be the last segment of the show. And this is going to be a tough one for Nick the American. I'm going to tell you a little story. I was... 
I was 17 years old, and um, my brother was 16. I've got a brother that's a year and four days. Barry is his name. He's a year and four days younger than me. So we're basically twins. We're on the same. We're on the Hazen High School baseball team together, and we come home from practice. Nobody's home. Nobody's home. And uh, this will date. You know, obviously, this is 1997, and so you go and you don't have a cell phone. You go and check your home phone messages. Is does it say a six? Does it have a three? Is it blinking a three? Is it blinking a two? And you press the the play button to hear back messages. That's kind of just one of the things you would do. I know, you know, young kids who were listening to this, that's what you did in the 90s or the 80s. You came home and you you hit the the, the recorder bus button to listen to the messages. Hope that girl you really liked left you a message. And she never did. But uh, me and my brother hit play on a message coming home from baseball practice when I was 17 years old in 1997. And it was my mother. And... I'm not, I really had never heard my mother cry. My mother was hysterical on the message. And she said, if you're getting this, Nick and Barry, you need to come to the hospital immediately. It's your sister. She's in trouble. I'll never, she didn't tell me what. She didn't tell me what was going on. She didn't tell my brother. She, she, didn't, she was vague in the message. She was hysterically crying, saying your sister is in trouble and you need to get to the hospital immediately. And so me and Barry, we drove to Valley Medical. And not, I'm thinking that Angela, my sister Angie, she was in a car wreck. She was in a car wreck and she's in critical condition. And, and, and we don't know what we're about to come upon. What was different than I thought? My 21-year-old sister, she was, she's four years older than me, five older than my brother, was in a hospital fighting for her life she had a malignant brain tumor and they needed to operate immediately. It was going to kill her. She was given, I believe, something like a 10% chance to live. And I'm 17 years old, watching my parents. And they remove the tumor. And then to save her life, they proceed to saturate her body with radiation over and over and over again. My sister survived. My sister survived. My 21-year-old sister got, she got a, a poker hand that nobody should get. She got dealt a hand of death, or so said the doctors. But my sister, she's a scapini. She's tough as shit. She's always been tough as shit. Little mouthy at times, Ange. Little mouthy at times. But she's always been tough as shit, and she proved it. The doctors told her, you were not going to be able to have kids. And she has a 21-year-old son named Connor and a 19-year-old son named Cody who exists today because she's tough as shit. Okay. I wrote my, my, my sister a letter when I was, I was a college student. I was a 21-year-old dipshit at Central Washington University. And I wrote her a letter. And in the letter, I told her that she was my hero. And Ange wasn't my hero for a lot of different, re you know, for different things. Me and her would argue, we'd fight. Hell, I broke her nose one time when I was little. 
she was always kicking the shit out of me. And my dad was telling her, Angie, Nikki's going to get older. And she was pounding on me and I whacked her in the nose. I, I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have done that, but I did it. I'm sorry. But I wrote her a letter saying she was my hero. Not because of the trials and tribulations of our life, but because of what she overcame. What she had to go through. She beat cancer. And so... I wrote her this letter, and, and over the past 20 years, do you think my sister would let me know the existence? The, she, she would consistently remind her, her brother, her little bro, as she called me and, and Barry, her little bros. She would consistently remind me, hey, you remember, I'm your hero. I'm your hero, you son of a bitch, Nick. I'm your hero. And I would sometimes shake my head and go, yeah, son of a gun. Why did I write that letter? Well, maybe I was smarter than I knew when I was 21 years old. Maybe that's why I wrote that letter. Ange had, has dealt with a lot in life. And because of the radiation, everything that she, the chemo and the radiation, everything that she went through, she was never going to be the same. Starting from 21 on, post her, her, her brain surgery, post-radiation, and she was never going to have the, the, the faculties that I have or my brother has or any of us have who hasn't gone through something like that, who didn't get dealt that 2-7 death offsuit. Awful hand. And I, was a, I think I was aware of this over the course of time, over the last 20 years, over the last 10 years, that Angie got a raw deal but I, I don't think I was quite as aware as I should have been. And over the last few years, me and my wife have noticed there was serious slippage in my sister. Her hair is fried. She wears a wig sometimes. She, she you know, her, her memory is shot. There were just her, her eyesight, her, her just physical abilities were they, they it was almost they were just it was almost like every month for her was a year in terms of age she looked she reminded me of a, a you know a 75 year old and so me and my wife were talking with my, my my parents and we said we've got to do something and Angie had some friends who had noticed it too and we had gotten some of her old doctors back that had performed surgery on her and 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 you know, the medical profession, they call it practicing medicine. You only know what you know. And so, you know, using radiation to save someone's life, even though it may, may have some awful effects down the road, it's what you have to do. And we're learning about it. And so my sister had been at UW Medical Center, and she had been working with doctors. And as it turns out, the last few years, she had had a series of mini strokes some small brain bleeds, and it made sense. Of course, that's why my sister's deteriorating. My strong, smart, badass sister who got dealt this awful hand, of course that's why she's deteriorating. And she had a checklist of things that she needed to do. We had a diagnosis of what we needed to do for Angie. And, 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 and there was somebody named Lisa Kennedy, one of Angie's really good friends, who who was doing everything possible to get Angie right, to 
we were never going to make her whole again, but we were going to stop this decline and Angie was going to have some really good years ahead of her. I did episode 22 on Tuesday morning and probably nine in the morning Pacific time. And after I finished episode 22, I got a call from my mother saying that my sister is in the hospital. My sister suffered on Tuesday a massive, massive stroke. And she suffered brain bleeding in an unrecoverable portion of her brain. I went down to the hospital and my sister was on life support and there was no ever, I was never going to get to talk to her again. I had to see her 21-year-old son, Connor, and her 19-year-old son, Cody. How they had to handle that. Me and my sister weren't always best friends. The thing about my sister was no matter what issues we ever had, she loved me with everything she had. She loved me with everything she had. And I, you know, I talked about Lily from Puyallup and, and you, you know, you, you hug them like you lost them. What I wouldn't give to give my sister a hug because one day later, they turned off life support and my sister passed away. My big sister, who, had, who has battled cancer from the time she was 21 years old until the time she left this earth at 49 years old. She's fought it. She's battled it. I've, I was talking with her oldest son, Connor, going back and forth, and he, was, he showed me a picture of what was on her nightstand in her room. It was a picture of me. It was a picture of her. It was a picture of my brother. It was a picture of the three of us. Mama Kitty, our cat, was in there too. And I asked Connor, I said, I wrote her a letter telling her she was my hero. Run across it. Please let me know because I would give anything to read what I said about my big sis. You know, my, and my sister would mess with me. Who do you think texted me when the Broncos gave up 70 points? She hates the fucking Broncos. <laughs> so fuck you, Ange. Nobody messes with me in the Broncos. She was supposed to go to a Madonna concert not long ago. Madonna was her, an obsession for my sister. Ridiculous obsession. And she got me to love Madonna as a as a young boy, but uh, Madonna got, you know, she got seriously ill and had to reschedule, but my sister's supposed to be going to Madonna. Supposed to do a lot of things. If I could say one thing to her, 
Maybe I wish I could just read that letter that I wrote that I haven't seen since I was 21. I would unquestionably tell her she's my hero for what she's been through, how she's handled it. I never heard her complain. I never heard her complain. So, rest in peace, Angela Jane Zipini. Your little brother will miss you more than you know. More than you know. I think with that, it's time to play a little Madonna song. And if you listen to this podcast, listen to the whole song. And you know what, Madonna, if you want to sue us, my sister worshipped the ground you walked on. She really did. This is episode 23. Goodbye, Angie. I love you.